What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, where I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of how they got to where they are today so that the rest of us can learn from their example. Today, I'm lucky enough to be talking to the one and only David Darmanin, who's best known for being the CEO of Hotjar. How's it going, David? All good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. I'm really glad to have you. For those who don't know, Hotjar is this amazing tool for analytics and customer feedback. It gives you heat maps and even recordings that show you exactly how people use your website, which ends up being not only extremely useful, but pretty fun to use in my opinion. I've been using it on Indie Hackers the past few days and it's great. So thanks David for building such a such a cool tool. Yeah, great to hear that. Always good to hear that there's there's value coming out of using Hotjar. There definitely is. A lot of people listening in might have never heard of Hotjar because you guys are only two and a half years old. But you've already grown to something like $10 million a year in revenue, if I'm, if I'm correct, and you're entirely bootstrapped. Is that right? Yeah, it's been some crazy paced growth. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah, it's been... Yeah, it's been it's been a fun journey so far. I'd say we try to specify that we're self-funded, as in we did we did invest a, a substantial amount of funds into the business, so just just under half a million, which is worth saying, right? Just just so that many many people out there don't think that we managed to achieve what we did on on no funds at all, right? So that would be very difficult to do. Yeah, I like I appreciate the honesty. <laughs> so you're yeah, yeah. you weren't starting from zero dollars. <laughs> Exactly. And, and interestingly, we, we tried to do that twice before Hotjar. So I, I like to talk a lot about the failures before Hotjar. So it was interesting to compare two ideas. I, I wouldn't call them startups because we didn't incorporate. I, I, I had this horrible experience of incorporating when I was in college. I was, I was 18 or something. And it was just, it was a very bad idea. We incorporated very quickly, which meant within months, I was taking care of liquidation, which was not uh. fun, especially if you're based in Malta. <laughs> so I promised myself um, years after working in-house in a software company and then becoming a consultant that if I had an idea, I wouldn't, I would take the risk of doing it as like a sole trader. And that's what I did. But anyway, the first idea I worked on, we t- it took us two years to build it and it hadn't seen the light of day. And then when we launched it, we realized it wasn't going to be successful. So with Hotjar, we wanted it to be very different. So I guess our failures influenced a lot our success. Yeah, I like talking about the failure stories as well, because for everyone who's succeeded, there's there's always a bunch of failures in the past and there's things that didn't work out so well. And so I think it'd be really fun to kind of dwell on those if you don't mind and try to understand some of the lessons that you learned back then that have helped pave the way for you to do what you're doing now. So if we could go back in time uh, to the, you know, through the story of David Darman, and what would you say is the best point in your life for us to kind of start the story where you began learning the things that you know now? It's interesting. Our, our, our content team asked me the same question, but they wanted to go way back. I don't mind going way back. <laughs> they, we can start wherever. Yeah, they traced, they traced all the way back. So even though I'm based in Malta, my family's Maltese, which is why I'm here. Uh, many people think that we're in Malta for tax reasons. And we're always like, no, we actually pay probably the highest tax in Europe because we're Maltese. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> it's incentivizing only foreigners uh, here, so, which is interesting. But even though I'm based in Malta, uh, my, my, my parents immigrated to Australia um, and I was born there. And I, like the, the moment they traced everything back to was when my dad, this was in the 80s, but... You know, that that uh, original Macintosh Plus with the smiley hello. So he had he brought one of those into his office and I was, what, like four or five? 
and I just remember falling in love with this device. And he had like a, a printing machine because he was printing like brochures and leaflets to circulate to the Maltese community in Australia. And I just fell in love with this idea of there being an interface between the device and the human and how that worked, right? So fonts and disks and folders. And this was just, it captivated me. And then fast forward, I actually ended up studying law. I'm actually a lawyer, which is kind of a, until recently was a relatively useless thing to have done. <laughs> but um, during my time studying, I actually did a lot of work in design um, just to get through the weekends, right? And also because it was something I really enjoyed doing. So I was always obsessed with the visual side. And then I had a client who asked me, can you build a website for us? I was like, of course, even though I had no, no <laughs> idea. But I was always frustrated, I remember, with this idea of how do I measure if what I've built is actually good or not? And it, it bugged me that it back in those days, it was based on whether you'd win a, like a Webby Award, right? An award, or if the client said, well done. Like, there's no really way to measure it. All I had was like, a, back then, like what, uh, what were they called? Like these counters you'd put on the site? So you just know, has the number of people coming to the site gone up or down? <laughs> and then fast forward from there, um, I tried to build a startup and I failed. So many fails of stories. But I, then I saw this ad in the paper by a Swedish software company in Malta that said, we have millions of page views and we want someone uh, to join us to help basically optimize the, the experience, optimize the results. And the role was an optimization specialist which this was kind of the beginning of this whole CRO growth hacking thing, right? This was a long time ago. And yeah, I joined these guys and we traveled to a ton of events and started using a lot of tools. And I think it was actually at one of these specific events that kind of the story of Hadra was really born. It was eMetrics in San Francisco, actually. So having been through my whole career and failed startups and all these things, I went to this event and I remember there was eBay speaking. Uh, and they were saying the degree to which they go to understand their user and customer, right? So they would go meet their, their typical user, a seller and a buyer in their house to understand like the context of within which they use it and uh, the ethnographic research, the surveys. Like I was so excited by the fact that these things existed. And there were many other uh, companies speaking there, Amazon, Booking.com. So I was really inspired by what could be done. But equally, I was really frustrated that these tools that were also being exhibited um, at this conference were so expensive, right? So I went back um, from the trip trying to pitch for us to use these tools, but they were so expensive, crazy expensive. Um, so yeah, I guess later on, then I moved on to become a consultant and I worked with, the, with really big companies who I was... Um, consulting and they had these tools which were so unreachable to this point and to be honest they were so disappointing and <laughs> <laughs> um, in the sense that like they were kind of typical enterprise tools right so they're built around the sales team the user experience was poor you needed multiple tools to get something done but then it dawned on me like i've worked for a decade in software I know this industry really, really well. I know exactly how to use these tools. Maybe this is the big thing I should be working on. And it dawned on me that my failures were coming from me not thinking big enough. So this was the point where I thought, okay, I'm going to think big. I'm going to persuade people to give me money. <laughs> I'm going to put, which was one of my co-founders, I spent six months working as a consultant, putting all the funds into the business. And, and yeah, that's, that's how we built Hotjar, basically. 
So you talk about how you had these all these failed startups before the story really started, before you became a consultant, before you saw these tools that you really wanted for everybody to have. What were some of these startups that you, you failed at? Because I think most people, it's interesting in and of itself to have multiple failed startups in your history. Like most people just dream about starting a startup and never actually take the plunge. But you've done it numerous times and didn't quit even when it didn't work out. So maybe maybe talk about like the what's the story behind the first company or the product that you worked on that ultimately failed? Sure. So the very first company that was early 2000, and that was an advertising agency. So it wasn't really a startup. It was more of a business. And it failed because the team that we put together didn't make sense. We were doing it because it was fun to have a business card and to have a business as opposed <laughs> to, you know yeah. what I mean? Like we're very young. So I, I wasn't even 20 yet. Um, it was this whole idea of, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we did it because I, I think the real key is to just be doing stuff, right? You just need to do shit because if you're out there, that's how you're going to learn uh, as opposed to just, just planning or, or listening to others. Like the key is just to get out there and, and fail quickly and just learn stuff. So I'm really glad that I did that very early on because I guess it scared me off a little bit for some time. And more importantly, I realized like I had to go learn from others. So I decided, okay, I'm going to go find myself some amazing bosses to work for and learn from them. What was the first boss you learned, you worked for that you felt you learned a lot from? Um, yeah, I was lucky that my, fr- my first boss, he was a German entrepreneur here in Malta. And he, he was looking to raise funding for an e-commerce incubator. This is the time when SMS was just the, the, the new thing, right? That's, that's how long ago this was. So he wanted to build businesses around this new e-commerce thing that was coming. So I joined before they raised and I, I had in like design and project management stuff, right? So IT and stuff. So it's, again, very young. But I went through this process of raising. And it was, I think we raised from Hutchinson, Orange. It was quite a substantial amount. So I think I was lucky in a way to have experienced that in Malta, <laughs> right? In this tiny country. But more importantly, what he gave me, he challenged me personally constantly. I did this to everyone. In, nearly in an aggressive way. But I liked it about him in the sense that he would force you to think much bigger of yourself and to think much bigger of of what can and cannot be done. And in fact, I I then left that business and and he helped me launch a business plan competition at the University of Malta, which was an amazing opportunity. So I think he taught me a lot around believing in yourself and and thinking kind of much bigger than kind of just the the location you're you're in. So he he helped me a lot from that point of view. So did you ever have this feeling that you know, you really wanted to work for yourself and that you, you know, didn't want to work a job forever? Or did you feel like you were pretty comfortable at the job? No, I was never comfortable at the job, to be honest. I was in, I, I always enjoyed the adventure and, and the thrill. Again, I was quite quite young. And I guess that influenced the the second startup then. So so after this I continued studying. And then when I finished studying, I, I spoke to my cousin with whom I had done the advertising agency in the beginning. And I basically, having had built so many sites for for my clients, like I hated the experience of building sites. Like I was playing around with Drupal and ASP and all these things. I was like, what if there was like a framework where you just go there and you just build a site from there? You just pay a subscription. And I think I got the idea of the subscription based from like paying for so many domains. It's like, oh my God, this is genius. All right, you have a domain and they, they charge you every year. So it's like, what if we could build a site in this way? So we were trying to build a framework, essentially, 
where someone can build a site just by using the components, right? Which was a great idea because this was pre Squarespace, BigCommerce, all these like uh, tools uh, that that do these things. But again, it was me and my cousin, <laughs> very young, <laughs> in our in my garage, thinking a little bit too big. So probably in reality, back then, if we had I don't know, found an angel investor and, and really pursued this. Um, maybe we could have succeeded, but I think we were just ahead of our time. Ironically, though, my cousin went on to now work for Automatic, their own, own WordPress, which is a funny story in a way. But yeah, that, that, was the, that was the second experience. And we failed because, again, we weren't just thinking big enough and we weren't really committed to it. So my cousin had another job. I was doing things on the side. I was studying. And so we... We weren't just doing it completely and really believing in it. So if, if there's anything I've learned throughout the last decade and a half or something, it's when you believe in something, you just do it completely focused. And you like it's better to just exhaust that idea as quickly as possible as opposed to doing it on the side with other things. Because timing is really, really critical for success. You have to have the right timing. So it's better to know very quickly if you've got the right timing or not. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What was your skill set like at the time? I'm curious because you're building websites for people using all these tools, but would you have considered yourself a programmer? No, no, I wouldn't say so. I would so my passion has always been design and user experience, but I'm I'm deeply in love with the whole concept of of marketing and so so yeah, I'm I'm more of a definitely more of a marketer, I would say, but more visually oriented. But um yeah, but then anything related to product and brand, that's that's like makes me tick so i guess it was me with that kind of idea of thinking about like how the product is going to work and and how visually should uh, be presented and then my cousin was the programmer building the back end and, and all that stuff i think a lot of people have trouble when they don't come from a programming background partnering up with somebody who can help them out and you know essentially do that side of the equation what has been your strategy it sounds like you've worked with a lot of friends and family but what has been your strategy you know outside of that for finding good partners to work with? That, that's a really good question. And I say this a lot to my friends. I get a lot of my friends asking me, David, how do I do what you did? And like, I, I can't code. And how do I, how do I meet other, other developers? And it's, it's basically, it's the same thing like dating, right? In a way, like you need to learn to speak their language. So if, if you have any ambition to build something which requires programmers or programming, like a technical co-founder, like just go out there, like create a blog, register a domain, install a few plugins in WordPress or use Drupal. You know what I mean? Just, just play around with the basics, understand how the internet works, servers. This is not complicated stuff, right? It just requires some, basically, that you dedicate some time and, and, and be passionate a little bit about how things work. Because then I see for myself, I get really along well with, with other technical people because I ask questions. Uh, I want to understand how things work. And I find that technical, uh, technically strong people, they, uh, they, they actually respect someone who wants to understand and explore stuff as opposed to kind of just dictate from a distance how things should work, right? So I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I really like what you said about not being afraid to get your hands dirty because you know if you take the time to learn something that you don't know if you take the time to use what skills you have to try to make an impact on your business then it really proves to the people that you're working with or that you want to work with that you're not just going to be dead weight because their biggest fear is that you know working with someone who's just going to kick back and say here's my idea you guys are the programmer nerds you just build it all on your own 
And then there's in terms of meeting like the, these people, like the, the best is to attend events. Like, you know, there's all these like startup marathon st- things. That's a great way to kind of get grouped up and, and meet people. But I'd say I really believe in this model of working for an amazing boss, especially early on, early on in your career. I think in the media, we see so many stories about, um, you know what I mean? The Zuckerbergs and the Elon Musks of this world which which is not the typical way people succeed, no. right? So we don't hear the stories of how, again, most of most of the the other entrepreneurs have been lucky to meet. They all have a very very similar story. They worked early on in in companies they admired and found and and bosses they loved. And they got inspired them or challenged like the things that those bosses didn't do well and made them better people. And in the process also met co-founders, right? So obviously working in a 200 person business when you're uh, in your twenties is obviously going to give you a hell of a network later on, right? So it's, it's, it's easy to discount that as kind of a, a, a journey, a route towards getting there, let's say. <laughs> Yeah, and I bet you that's especially true when you're working for the kind of boss that you were in a place where everybody's being pushed to do their best and you're maybe entrusted with a little bit more responsibility than you deserve because then you're surrounded by talented people who are ambitious and who are likely to become your future co-founders as opposed to working at a more normal type of job. That's true because the opposite is equally true, right? So at that age, you really don't want to waste time, your time working in a business you don't believe in or a business or a boss you don't admire because... That's like, it's, it's kind of wasted opportunity to learn. So one of the things that you mentioned is that you eventually got a job as a growth consultant working with large companies. And I'm really curious what kind of things you learned in that role, because growth is so important for any startup in any arena. And it was probably a very new role for you. So what did you come away with? That was a wonderful experience. So I was literally thrown in the in the deep end, <laughs> in a good way, in the sense that I was given five companies to consult. I can't mention their names, but they're all global, huge brands that everyone would probably recognize <laughs> on this call. Uh, sorry, on uh, listening to this session. Um, but yeah, it, it was great in the sense that it was intimidating, it was scary, but more importantly, working with the CEOs and, and growth teams and marketing teams of these businesses, you realize that in the end, like it's all about the people, right? It, 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 there isn't that big of a, a, a jump between what I know and they know, which is great because you start to realize that the opportunities are much bigger than you think. Mm-hmm. It's, so, it's so easy to be a little bit insular in your world to think that kind of um, you're not good enough, right? And, and that it's, it's way too competitive and you can never succeed. So I guess what this gave me was like a, a short kind of condensed MBA in terms of learning, but also um, speaking to what would eventually become my ideal customers, all done in a very short time frame. So, and, and I guess I was also smart in a way that I read a lot of books um, during this time, which helped me as I was learning, I was also kind of reading from what others had learned. And at the same time, I was also paying a developer on the side out of my, uh, out of the money I was making as a consultant just to experiment with ideas as well. So it was quite a hectic two years of my life. <laughs> yeah, you were a busy guy. What kind of ideas were you experimenting with? So these these are the next two ideas then, the next two kind of start as startups in inverted commas because, again, we didn't incorporate. So the first one was my background, funnily enough, is... 
I've also done, it's actually how I started design. I've also done a lot of events, parties here in Malta. Um, that's how I learned to kind of design in the very beginning. Now, originally, I started doing events because I was very frustrated when I launched that business plan competition at university that not many people were participating in it they weren't interested so i was like okay what do people like in malta they like parties <laughs> <laughs> so let's do parties about the business plan competition right and that kind of worked but the party thing maybe was a little bit too good at it so we ended up doing more of that and then when i stopped the competition thing i ended up doing more events and what was interesting was that i learned a lot from this in terms of um, sending emails, uh, using social media that I just launched and how to write persuasive content, creating guest lists to create like this concept of exclusivity and whatnot. Uh, but more importantly, I realized working with a lot of um, uh, hospitality and, and, and venues that Th these guys had had no idea about the idea of, of marketing and digital marketing and, and the idea of loyalty, right, and retention. So basically, I built a great product with like with a market that I had no idea about. <laughs> <laughs> so I built like a, a digital marketing and retention tool, like with a loyalty program for retail, for hospitality, and whatnot. And this is where we spent those two years, right? So it was an awesome tool where you had iPads, where people could sign up and you could log in from your phone and see like points and you could receive updates about events. It was, it was really well done. The problem was that once we finished and we were ready to take this to market, I realized I had no idea how to reach these, these people. And, and it's interesting because I considered myself to be quite smart, right? But this is the whole point, which is it's, this is why you have to be agile. This is why you have to kind of move as quickly as possible to releasing something as opposed to spending a lot of time building because it's so easy to get lost in this mind frame of what I'm building is going to be amazing. It's going to create so much value. So what happened was we struggled to, to speak to the people who should be buying it because they, they didn't have a traditional office. They were moving all over the place and were, had weird times. They didn't have... It's something that I mention a lot when I advise startups. They didn't have a budget, right, in inverted commas. So they hadn't allocated time and money in their brain or in their accounts to this tool or a service or something that delivers the value that I was trying to deliver. So in essence, what I was trying to do was, this to me is the scariest word when you're launching something, is to educate them, yeah. right? To do something that they hadn't been doing to that point which we managed to do, as in we managed to convince a few venues to use it and they loved it, but it was just going so much against the way they'd always done things, it was difficult to sustain their usage. So that was a huge, huge disappointment for us, but it was a wonderful learning experience. And I remember reading, Seth Godin wrote The, the Dip, and I remember reading The Dip and saying, okay, we have to stop. <laughs> We have to pivot because so many of the of the ingredients are not lining up. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I like how you you talked about how easy it is to get lost in this building phase where you're just you know so confident that your product's going to work and you're not really talking to anybody and you're not really attempting to sell it. So you you don't really know if it's going to work, but you you feel confident. And I think one of the worst things about it is that you know you talk about all these startups that you're starting and failing at and how you're learning lessons, but when you get trapped in like, the super long building phase. You're kind of you're not really learning anything, and I've I've had points in time in my career as well where 
I would spend six months or 12 months building something and learn zero lessons except for how to build this product. And then it would fail. And it's like, I would have learned so much more in that year if I, if I, you know, iterated a little bit faster and actually had my ideas hit the market earlier. But in a way, thank God we experienced that because that completely influenced the way we launched Hotjar in the market then. Yeah. So let's talk about the way that you launched Hotjar because it probably represents the culmination of a lot of the things that you learned earlier in your career and a lot of the lessons that you learned from failing at your businesses. How did you come up with the initial idea for Hotjar? And what were some of the first steps you took to get started working on it? So yeah, I would say it was definitely the point where I was systematically hearing clients and people say kind of the same phrases, like, if only I had like these tools all in one, or it's so complicated to use this. You know what I mean? So it's just all these things start to align where I reached out to, well, a few people I was was already working on on these projects that I mentioned, but there was also two ex-colleagues of mine that were working on a a startup uh, where I saw similar patterns to what I had done in terms of mistakes in the past. So I reached out and said, hey, I'm happy to help out. And if things don't work out, maybe we can work together, right? And that's what happened. So we ended up joining forces. And I explained kind of the vision of Hotjar. And we said, okay, here's here's the plan. So we're going to spend one month, literally only one month, making sure that this is viable. Can this actually work? Because what we were trying to do is actually build a solution that collects insights from like heat maps, recordings, funnels, all these things, and feedback in a way that is different. So where where other providers back then were collecting data constantly from all pages, all users, all the time, we said, let's only collect data when you need it, right? Because we knew the way agencies and internal teams worked. They'd say, let's work on the homepage, and let's let's because we need to focus on the home page next, or the registration page is not working. So so and it's it's physically impossible for them to optimize every part of the site at one go. So we said there is an opportunity here for us to do things differently, which means the data will load much faster, which means we can do it in much more an affordable way. So this could be kind of a game changer in terms of no one has never taken this functionality for free to everyone in the world and then charged premium rates for premium features, right? What if we took that freemium model and applied it to this industry? It could be a game changer. But we wanted to make sure that that was doable, right? So we were lucky, obviously, that timing-wise, again, with, with AWS reducing its pricing and so many competition, and we, we spent one month building kind of a, a, a really, really bare prototype and yeah eric told us this is doable (laughs) (laughs) like the costs when we calculated everything and and again it's all about thinking big right we were thinking what if we had hundreds of thousands of sites sending us data how would that work and we knew it was doable and that's that's all we needed to hear so on the back of that myself and jonathan he's he's the my co-founder is more on the ux design side we basically created very very quick visuals of what this product would look like again based on what we knew what was possible right so we're not trying to visualize something that we're not sure it's possible or not yet so we knew it was possible and we visualized that and we put it on the site right so exactly the opposite of that other project and we said we just put it live on a web page and we said okay if you want this at this price and it's going to have all of this included in one, right? It's going to solve a lot of the problems you have. Just put in your email address. And then when you put in your email address, I remember I'd just seen 
I was always inspired a lot by launches of products like uh, um, how Gmail had launched with five invitations. Robin Hood had done like a, a queue. So we're like, we have to definitely leverage this stuff because we knew how to do it. So what we did was once you signed up, Hodra uh, would say, okay, you're number 100 in the queue. Now, if you want to move ahead, you refer your friends. And by the way, if you're the top 20, you get a free lifetime account. Top 200, you get a T-shirt. Top whatever, you get six months for free. So we, we threw in a lot of kind of incentives in there. And it just took off. It went, it, went, <laughs> it went crazy, literally. So within a few months, we hit around 60,000 emails and, and growing. <laughs> That's crazy. And it's funny that you did exactly like the direct opposite of what had plagued you in the past with your earlier products, because I, I felt the same pool as well. Exactly. You know, like if you failed, <laughs> if you failed a few times, you remember those experiences, and you just like make sure to never fail for the same reason ever again. So that's really great to hear. Agreed. And that's why it's so important to just be doing stuff, right? You just have to do. Because funnily, looking back, every tiny thing I did, like contributed to that that kind of that plan. Right. I remember even back in the software company where I was, I always wanted to do a beta program, but we never got down to do it. And I remember telling the team, like, okay, we're constantly thinking, how do we launch faster, 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 so we can move faster? So let's just do a beta, right? So the idea was that what we put on the site was actually get access to the beta program, right? Not to the actual tool, which again saved us time which meant within one month, we started slowly inviting people in, giving them access and getting feedback. And that, I guess, is where probably we we kind of, like most people think the genius part was the viral thing, but actually the genius thing was that everyone we invited was listened to carefully. Every suggestion we got was written down. If we acted on it, we let them know. If we didn't, we let them know. So we treated them with so much respect that we created this kind of community and, and initial fans, which we still feel the effect of till today. I think a lot of people hear this advice about how crucial it is to have great customer service, but at the same time, it's probably the most often ignored advice. And I suspect that's because when you're actually in the situation of having a ton of features to build, a ton of bugs to fix, a ton of fires to put out and sales to make, it's hard to justify spending time to go above and beyond for your customers. It's just like not as clear what the return on your investment is going to be. And so you prioritize other things. And so I'd love to hear you dive into a little bit more detail here and talk about uh, how this paid off for you guys at Hotjar. Yeah, I, I, I was also part of that group that I didn't get it. I didn't understand the value of that. <laughs> I read an interesting book, actually. It's called Selling the Invisible which is, was a great book, by the way. It's kind of positioned itself as modern-day marketing, even though it's not that kind of recent anymore. But great book, I highly recommend. Even the title in itself tells you everything, right? Which is, you are selling the invisible. You are selling bits and bytes on a web page coming from a server, right? So when you think about it, what's left as a flavor at the end of that exchange is really how you interact with them. And that is so important, even much more than the actual product itself, right? Obviously, you don't want to have a shitty product. But at the end of the day, what adds Nitro to that product is the experience they have around that. So just the small examples that I can give um, are, for example, we've had customers, big customers, right, tell us that they've chosen us just because of the way that we've treated them. We've had reviews online from people saying this thing maybe didn't work but these guys are awesome and i know they're fixing it 
So you'd be surprised that, for example, in our case, we communicate our product roadmap. We, we're very transparent. These things do add up and they do contribute to your brand. And, and they're much, much, much more powerful than you might imagine. That's really interesting. And it, it makes me curious how much of what you've learned and the lessons that you've applied came from your own experiences and reacting to those. And how much of it came from things that you've learned in books and from other people? When you talk about your viral launch campaign, for example, where you got 60,000 email subscribers, a lot of the tactics that you use there, like exclusivity and social proof and the incentives that you provided, could easily just be read about in a book without really needing much experience. So I'm curious what your ratio is overall, because it kind of feels like you're, you know, you're about half and half of learning from books and learning from your own, your own mistakes. I was going to say, I think it's 50-50, actually. And what's, what's great about that is the two compound on top of each other. The thing is, nowadays, it's, it's kind of we're losing a little bit this the most effective way of learning that we've had in humanity for quite a long time, <laughs> which is someone has a very successful career um, or, or has, someone has been doing something for a very long time and they write a book about everything that they've learned, right? It doesn't mean you need to copy what they're doing, right? But it's just... The ability to look at kind of this shared wisdom and look back at what someone experienced is truly powerful, in my opinion. And it took me time to realize this, right? So I think it was just five, six years ago that I started taking my reading seriously. I joined a conversion rate experts, which is the consulting gig. And and basically, I remember going to these uh, meetups. We had every quarter with like 20, 30 other consultants from all around the world. And I was like, oh my God, like these guys are talking about things that I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> so I just went around everyone. I was like, okay, what's your favorite 10 books? And I did it with everyone. And I just took the top 10 in common with everyone. And I just read those books and then kept on going through the list. And then those books within them recommend other books. And it's just a never ending thing. Um, and yeah, I think based from what I've seen, like if you really want to be a successful entrepreneur, you need to read. It's important. But it's so easy to read crap, right? There, unfortunately, there's so many people that are now just writing books for the sake of doing books or you write a book to build a successful business. You know what I mean? It's this whole thing going on. So I highly recommend, if you are really passionate about what you're doing, reach out to five, 10 people that you truly admire and ask them which books they have read. Or even if you read online, there's a ton of thought leaders that have said which books that they love. And start with those, right? Start with people you admire. That's really solid advice. And I like how your story highlights kind of a third leg in addition to learning from your own experiences and learning from books, which is to, as much as possible, surround yourself with other people who are already, you know, ideally already good at the thing that you're trying to get good at. Because those are the types of people who are going to recommend the books that you should read and who are going to surface all sorts of information and tips and strategies that you would probably never know about otherwise. I know personally, like I've gotten much better at designing and programming and, and launching startups just by talking to people and living in San Francisco where people are kind of always doing this. A lot of people out there are kind of working in isolation. They're working in a town or a place, and I'm sure Malta was pretty similar, where not everybody's on the same page and they kind of look at you funny when you tell them what you're up to. So it's worth at least finding some sort of online community of people that you can join. Agreed. And as soon as you can afford it, then attend events. Events are super powerful in terms of getting inspired, meeting people, networking. Couldn't agree with you more. So you had, kind of back to the story of Hotjar, one of the things I think is interesting about how you got started was that before you started Hotjar, you were working with all of these clients that were huge. 
And that's kind of the world that you understood. And yet when you started Hotjar, your entire hypothesis at the beginning was that you want to bring these tools to everybody and that you want to sell to people who don't have as much money and you want to make the tool as affordable as possible, uh, which is really interesting because it's you didn't necessarily have experience knowing what people at that price range wanted. So is that something you were concerned about at all? Kind of, but at the same time, having failed twice, like I was kind of... It was kind of at the point where I had no option. I had to succeed. <laughs> <laughs> Were you desperate? Um, yeah, I was desperate, definitely. I was trying to avoid using the word, but that's <laughs> correct. Um, <laughs> and in fact, pricing-wise, we probably low-balled ourselves a little bit too much, but I'd much rather do that and succeed as opposed to kind of doing the opposite. So we definitely probably spent the least time on pricing, for example. <laughs> but it's the model which was important, right? So I remember reading there was a an article, uh, what's his name? I'm trying to remember the name of the guy who wrote it. But anyway, it was, it was an article about the future of an entrepreneur, uh, sorry, of uh, enterprise software. And it talked about how in the future, um, enterprise software is going to become more B2C, right? And it's, it was great to read this essay because I suddenly realized it was, it was one of the founders of Y Combinator, actually. And I remember reading and saying, oh, my God, this is exactly what I feel as well. I don't think enterprise software is going to be as it is today. And I, and I got a real glimpse of enterprise software because I had consultant enterprise clients, not in our field, right? But I could see how it worked. And it was interesting. I was helping these enterprise companies grow. And most of their users were telling them their feedback, right, was, oh my God, like, why do I have to speak to sales team and the prices are hidden and like, I just want to use the fucking product. I just want to see how it works, right? So exactly. these kind of things. So in a way, interestingly, the fact that I was consulting these companies gave me a window into how teams were thinking. And then there was also our personal belief of a future where software is no longer going to be uh, super complicated, expensive, and you have to speak to a sales team. Well, there will always be sales teams, right? Because you have to sell to bigger enterprise, but it's just a different model. And we, we really believed in that. So we said, okay, let's build something for teams and let the teams sell to the organization. And that was the biggest shift in, in thinking for the industry that we took. And it paid off really well. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, you guys have grown a crazy amount since the beginning, and your growth kind of started right off the bat. So today, about how many websites would you say are using Hotjar? So we have around 250,000 sites sending us data. We have 16,000 customers. That's um, huge. Yeah, and we've grown... Yeah, we've grown to 11 million euro in ARR now. So that's crazy. So that's and we're just over two and a half years. Yeah, so it's been, it's yeah. We we have to pinch ourselves every now. <laughs> I was going to ask like, <laughs> two and a half years ago if I told you that this would be the result, would you believe me? No idea. I, in fact, I say this to my wife every now and then. We still remember being in my parents' um, apartment in Malta and uh, logging into uh, Braintree to see like what the how, how much like uh, our MRR was, and it was just like two or three thousand euros. And I always tell my wife, who would have told us that things were going to just spiral so much? So, so yeah, we're, we're definitely considered ourselves to be lucky. So what were some of the first things you guys did after you had all these tens of thousands of people sign up for your mailing list? And, and specifically, what were some of the best decisions you made to help kind of sustain your growth rate and keep it to where it is up until the present day? Yeah, so there were two things that we did 
quite well and and we're thankful for doing them one is that as soon as we invite like one we communicated a lot with everyone who were waiting like about what the hell is going on because obviously we couldn't invite everyone one go right that would have like killed us so we were five people literally doing all the support for these people and and doing uh, updates and changes and fixing bugs so that was this was probably the most intense 10 months of, of our lives and so yeah so we we did very well we communicated constantly every week i send out an email to everyone saying here's what's going on here's what's happening here's what's happening in the beta here's why you're waiting so we addressed and we used intercom back then so we addressed all the questions that were coming in we allowed everyone to just reply to an email and we'd reply to everyone um and then we started noticing some questions were coming in. So based on the question we'd get, we'd actually eat our own dog foods and actually use surveys from Hotjar. That's what is the first feature that we, we mm-hmm. finished because it was the easiest, right? <laughs> <laughs> but we'd send out surveys to our, to our, our beta um, subscribers waiting for access, asking them, for example, we noticed a lot of them were agencies. So we're like, okay, if you're an agency we'd like you to take the survey. And we asked them questions about how they wanted to pay and how they wanted it to work. And we were blown away with the results. Some of the results were the opposite of what we thought, right? So that that early feedback helped shape the way we built the product. But equally, as soon as someone came into the beta, like after two weeks, we sent them a survey. After three months, they also received a survey. So there was a lot of feedback loops going on uh, which helped us shape very quickly back then um, how the product was built. In fact, I, many times we say, like, we wish we, we ran the beta for another six months. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you guys are experts at talking to your users and learning from the things they say, which is not surprising because you are building a tool for collecting feedback. Alongside having good customer support, I think talking to your users and learning from them is one of the most challenging uh, and yet common pieces of startup advice. It's so easy, and I know I've been guilty of this myself numerous times where I know I'm supposed to talk to customers, but I'll just look up, and it will have been three weeks or a month since I've talked to anybody. So it's really easy to just get behind on that. What are some of the more unintuitive things that you guys learned by talking to your customers, and how did that change your game plan? Yeah, and the reality is we've made that mistake as well, right? So I should be speaking to customers every week, but sometimes it's difficult to do that, especially when the patterns become the same and your challenge is more scaling up the, the technical side of things, right? That's been our biggest challenge. Like, how do we grow the team to keep up with all the things that our customers want us to do? And then you end up having always the same conversations with your customers. But the reality is that your customers just love to be heard, right? Now, that's even more important than nearly doing the things they want you to do. Um, as in, they go together, right? As in, just listening to them and explaining, hey, like, we've been very successful, we're hiring, we're, inv- we're investing, these things do work. But there's there's been quite a few things, like, especially on the pricing front, that have been very revealing speaking to our customers. What I've noticed is when you build a tool and you price it, um, in your mind, you create this bias of how it should be understood and used, right? So I think the empathy you get from speaking to customers is you get this, oh shit moments, right? It's like, oh no, like that's, that's not like how it works. That's not what we meant it to be. Or actually we already shipped that, like that's already available in the product, right? So I think it just gives you visibility into how everything in your brain is never going to reach your customers, so you always need to be thinking creatively about how you're communicating. Like the communication piece is so important. How you're passing on that information to your customers. 
Yeah, it's always been crazy to me how much the curse of knowledge comes into play when you're trying to promote your product or even just build your product. Because as someone building something, and I like this happens to me all the time, I'll build something and I will know exactly how it's supposed to work. I'll know exactly what you're supposed to do. And then I'll release it to people and think it's pretty good. And they will stumble over like the most basic things, like things that I just didn't even conceive of being possible to misconvey or misconstrue. And this is an equally important challenge at every phase of your business, especially in the early phases when you don't have thousands of customers. I mean, you still need to communicate, right? You have to put up a landing page where ideally customers can come and they can understand what it is that you're building and why it's valuable to them and why they should use it. And even if you know the answers to all of these questions, I think it still cannot be overstated how difficult it is to get this idea perfectly from your mind and to your customers' heads. I agree. And it's, that's why it's a huge advantage to come from a... Like to build a product to solve a problem that you actually have, right? So that just makes it so much easier to describe it and to understand who, 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 like how it should be explained to the person using it. Yeah. So your background uh, going into Hotjar was really as like a, a marketer, a growth consultant. And I always think it's interesting that there are so many angles from which people ultimately choose to become founders. Like there are a lot of programmers and product people, obviously, who think, hey, I know how to make stuff. So I can become a founder. And a lot of times I think they end up focusing too much on the code to the exclusion of everything else. And then you see a lot of people who come from bigger businesses who say, hey, you know, I've seen the inner workings of how companies work. I can start something. And very often they're kind of slow moving and not really all that scrappy. Uh, and they're not sure how to you know, go from like zero to one and, and do the very beginning stages to get something off the ground. And then there are a lot of people who come from the direction that you came from, which is as a marketer. And it strikes me that that's probably a really good way to come into business because you understand how to communicate with people. But at the same time, I, I wonder, are there any disadvantages or any blind spots that you had as a marketer starting a company? Definitely. Um, to be honest, the way I see it is that I was always an entrepreneur, but I just became a growth <laughs> consultant <laughs> in, like in the meantime. And, and that's, that's not good, right? Because the thing is, again, I think I was quite good at doing it. Um, and the problem is that it just switches you onto that mindset. Like there's nothing worse than an optimizing mindset if you're an entrepreneur. Right, because in reality, as you said, you you need to ship things fast and you need to stay scrappy for as long as you can. Because the moment you stop to optimize and spend too much time thinking about that, you're just not moving fast enough, right? Yeah. In fact, many people are shocked when I tell them that at Hotjar, like in two and a half years, like we've ran maybe three split tests. That's it. <laughs> um, and even for me, it's shocking, right? But the reality is, now we're going to start doing more of it. But the reality is, like, when you know what you need to do because you're speaking to your users or customers, there's just no time to run split tests. You know what I mean? So you know what you need to do. And that's a good place to be in. I think many a time, the optimizing mindset can be extremely kind of detrimental to, to change, which sounds ironic. But, like, what the more kind of obsessed you become with measuring change, sometimes change can become slower. So we have a mantra at Hotjar, which is simple, which is you need to be slightly ashamed of the thing that you're shipping. Because <laughs> if you're not, then you, you've probably gone a little bit too far. That's a great mantra. And I love that you, you point out the, like, the limits of optimization in it. Because I mean, you, it's so easy to read stories of how Google is testing 42 different shades of blue and you know all these different A-B testing oh God, suites. Yeah. And like, you just think, my website is so under-optimized. I, mean, I could be doing so many better things. But ultimately, those are kind of incremental improvements. And 
like you said, like if you have like these huge things you need to build, if you've been talking to customers and you know kind of where you need to go, then increasing the conversion rate on your homepage by like one percentage point is not going to be the most important thing on the top of your list. In fact, we get asked a lot around like, why don't we do tests, right? What, 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 sorry, why don't we offer testing within Hotjar? Like, why don't we offer split testing? And the reality is we explain that actually you need to have a huge amount of traffic to do split testing. And split testing is, by the way, not a tool for the discovery of what works. It's only a confirmation that all your research and hypothesis is correct. And in fact, if you look at the whole web, the majority of sites out there cannot be testing. They should be changing. So in a way, that is much more top of mind for us in terms of the tool we, we deliver. So it's then for those companies that do need to test, Hotjar is like the ideal complement to that. It's like the research tool where you discover what you should be testing. Exactly. I was going to say that. Like One of the cool things about Hotjar is that it, it's just watching people use the website and looking at the heat maps makes me ask questions that I never would have asked before. Is that something that you uh, intended when you first built the product? Absolutely. Like the whole idea of combining the, the we call it like analytics or in-page analytics or whatever, with feedback is where we're headed towards and we haven't even started yet in terms of where we're going. But we, we think that when you observe, when you empathize, that's what makes you ask the right questions and vice versa, right? So when you ask questions and you see answers, understanding what like if there's one predominant answer or an answer which is very peculiar being able to see what were the events that led to that answer is extremely powerful it's what we call connecting the dots that's really good stuff and it's just so important so i'm looking forward to to all your new features and i can't wait to use them when they're out i want to go back to talk a little bit about growth because we talked about how after you launched this beta you were super communicative with your users and you made sure to know to let them know exactly what was going on with the beta, their place in line. You, you know, publicized your product roadmap and talked about the features that you're going to do and you sent out surveys and talked to your customers to try to find out what was working for them and what wasn't. But I'm curious about some of your more, you know, traditional marketing efforts. What channels really worked for you guys to help sustain your crazy growth rate over the last couple of years and where have you gone to find new customers for Hotjar? Yeah, paid is something that we've learned to do really well, right? So we sold software in the pre-smartphone era. That's um, apps for like for Windows and stuff. <laughs> and back then, like content was not the most um, standard route to go. So I have a big belief that the key when you launch a business is to really focus, zoom in on one, maximum two channels and do them really well. You don't want to be doing too many channels at one go because it's it's very difficult to master many. So we made a conscious decision that we weren't taking the most long-term best approach, but we we did what we knew, what we knew how to do really well. So basically what we did was we said, let's let's focus on, on growth because we know how to do that really well. Sorry, on paid. So we, we started with, with um, social media paid. So essentially uh, leveraging channels where we know we could find the typical teams that we wanted. We knew we'd be using Hotjar and we made them aware of the product. And then later on, we moved into Google search and now we're doing Google display. Then obviously what helps us a lot in our case is the fact that the product is quite uh, kind of viral in itself, right? So it's not, actually, it's not completely viral. So for, for every one user we get for in a paid way, we wouldn't get more than one. But we, like, because our users love the product so much, 
we actually see quite a lot of kind of what we call this organic uptick on the back of that. So roughly for, let's say, every 10 paid signups we have, we easily get another five, six that are kind of organic on the back of that. And then there's word of mouth and there's the feedback widgets, which have a link in them. So, so that has been also a big source of growth for us. It's really cool that you're hyper-focused on a couple of channels and they're working well for you. But at the same time, you're sort of getting this incidental traffic from other channels as well. We're running low on time here, unfortunately. So to wrap things up, what would be your advice for somebody who's just starting out? Somebody who's maybe just considering, you know, starting their first online business or maybe someone who's a little bit further ahead and they're kind of in the idea phases for their very first business. What does somebody in that situation really need to know? Be very critical about the idea in terms of its timing and question yourself, like, what is my unfair advantage? Because there are just so many people out there trying to probably do what you're trying to do. And today ideas are not that kind of valuable, <laughs> right? With, with tech becoming so cheap and speed being so fast to execute, you really need to have an unfair advantage of some sort. It's either that you know exactly where to find thousands of millions of users in a cheap way, or maybe you know how to use this product in a way that others do not know. Uh, there needs to be some kind of unfair advantage. So be critical on yourself. And the advice on the back of that, what we talked about before, where there is no clear idea or clear path, then don't force it, right? Go work for an amazing boss. I think that's a much better route towards finding that that amazing idea to execute on versus trying to force it, uh, which which might end up leading you to spend a long time working on what would have been very difficult to be successful with. Yeah, I agree. Because no matter how talented you are as a founder, no matter you know how skilled you are, or what you bring to the table, if you start off with your business aiming completely 180 degrees in the wrong direction, then you're going to have to spend a long time trying to rectify that mistake. And you're probably going to run out of money and quit before you figure it out. So it's worth taking the time to do some good research up front uh, and build some knowledge and make sure that you're working on something promising. But anyway, thanks so much for the advice, David, and thanks for coming on the show. Can you let listeners know where they can go to find out more about you personally and about the things you're up to with Hotjar? So yeah, so we, we write quite a lot about Hotjar on our blog, even though we're still in the... That, that was This is the new channel we're moving into, right? Which is content. <laughs> but I've actually been writing about our journey for quite a long time. So I've already published two edition, like two two milestones in the Hotjar story for like how we did the beta and then how we went to 1 million ARR and now I'm publishing soon to 3 million ARR so it's, I think we're sharing pretty much all the details so I think it's quite valuable and that's uh, hotjar.com slash blog but um, everyone can find me on Twitter as well I'm, I'm very uh, happy to answer any questions that you might have or, or engage with you or even take a call so it's, uh, it's David Darmanin on Twitter Thanks so much for coming on the show, David. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and they really help other people to discover the show. So thanks a ton for your support. In addition, if you are running an internet business or if it's something that you'd like to do in the future, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com forum. 
It's a great place to get help with pretty much any problem that you might encounter while growing your business, like how to come up with an idea or feedback on a product that you're working on. I try to spend a couple hours a day just answering questions and giving people feedback and getting to know everyone, so I really hope to see you there. That's ndhackers.com forum. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.